Let's pray together. Father, just one brief word more before I unfold the message for us. Would you come now and still our hearts and make us very discerning, very reasonable, very sensitive to truth, very open to whatever you have to say to us. I pray that you would move in this room right now and perform acts of mercy through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I wonder how many of you remember Dick Pomerantz. Let me see your hands. The name Dick Pomerantz mean anything to anybody? Goodness, there are far fewer people than I thought. Dick Pomerantz was a radio talk show host here in the Twin Cities. On KSTP, had a show called News Talk back in 1983. And he was acid-tongued, and he was sharp, and he was agnostic. And he gave trouble to people on the radio, and he didn't have the time of day for the likes of me, an evangelical Christian. So my good friend, Tom Steller here, got the bright idea that we should offer him $400 to uh, grill me about the resurrection of the dead in the Kaufman Union at University of Minnesota before 500 students. And lo and behold, he accepted And I just remember it like it was yesterday. It was two days after Easter in 1983, April 2nd, I believe it was. And the place was just packed out. And uh, there was a little table at the front, and I was on one side, and he was on the other. And the first question he asked me was, why do you practice voodoo? This is typical Pomerantz. And uh, I said, well... I wasn't aware that I did practice voodoo. What do you what do you mean by voodoo? And he said, well, you know, somebody rising from the dead, dying and then rising from the dead. And then through some hocus pocus, it has an effect on somebody far away, like, you know, sticking pins in a doll and changing people far away. That's the way it started. And I won't go on and tell you the rest of the conversation It's on tape, by the way, at our church library. If you're interested, the whole thing is on tape. But let me tell you what I learned or relearned that afternoon at Kaufman Union. I relearned that whenever you talk about the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ, you have to combine two things. You have to combine the truth question And the meaning question. You can't separate the two. You have to talk about, did it really happen? Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? And you have to talk about the meaning question. So what if he rose from the dead? What difference would it make in anybody's 20th century life if he rose from the dead? Those two questions are very closely related. There are a lot of people who reject Christianity because they don't believe the resurrection is true. That's a fable. It didn't really happen. It was made up. There are other people, I think maybe more on this side, who reject Christianity not because they're persuaded in their head that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but because they can't, for the life of them, see what difference it would make in the 20th century. It's just no big deal. We've got work to do. 
Those two things have to be kept together when anybody gives an account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is what I want to do this morning. They are inseparable. What the resurrection means to me is very much why I believe it's true. And the fact that I'm persuaded that it's true increases the meaning that it has for me. And they are very intertwined, as I think you'll see as we get into the message. And so what I want to do in the first part of the message is unfold for you very briefly six reasons for why we ought to take very seriously the biblical claim that Christ rose from the dead and is alive today, laying claim on our lives this morning. Six reasons. And if you want to see these unfolded more fully than I have time to, just get this book over there. I'm taking them out of the back of this book because I don't know any better reasons than I'm going to give you right now. Reason number one. We ought to seriously consider that Christ rose from the dead because he said he would when he was on the earth. And he said he would in words that the early church later on never used anymore. They were uniquely words of Jesus. He said things like. No sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah three days in the belly of the fish and then spit out as though it were a resurrection. It was a veiled claim. I am going to be three days in the. Earth and then rise. Another way he said it was destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That kind of language is not used in the rest of the New Testament. Those are Jesus very words. Historical scholars won't dispute. He talked like that. But now I know if you're a sharp thinker, you're probably saying some proof. He said he's going to rise and therefore he rose. Wow. Suppose I say I'm going to rise. Now, here's the catch. There are tens of thousands of people in America and around the world and in history who, even though they may not believe in the resurrection of the dead, have made their best effort and believe there is good warrant for believing he's a good teacher. He's a man of integrity. He's a man whose heart was right. He's a model to follow. Mahatma Gandhi said that. Albert Schweitzer said that. Both of them rejected the resurrection. But you can't have it both ways. Can you? I mean, what kind of man of integrity, what kind of psychological stability, what kind of teacher goes around hinting and claiming that he's going to rise from the dead can be a model for us? Either you must Reject him as a man of integrity, a man of stability, and a good teacher. Or you must stop and at least think long and hard that maybe if the rest of what he said is worth listening to, these things are worth listening to. That's all I want to say on that point. Maybe we should listen. Second argument. The tomb where he was laid was empty on the third day. And the enemies who wanted to kibosh this new movement called Christianity couldn't turn up anybody. And therefore, stories began to be fabricated. 
stories like, well, he wasn't really dead and he was swooning. And when he got into that cold tomb and they shut the rock on him, he came to. And in the night, he pushed the rock out of the way, walked out, appeared to a few, went off and died somewhere. And Christianity began. The problem with that, it goes so against the excruciating atrocity of crucifixion. It goes against the high demands that the Jews and Pilate placed upon the soldiers to make sure he was dead. And they did. That has never carried weight with anybody seriously. Other arguments have been raised like the disciples stole his body and they've hidden it somewhere. And the big problem with that is within a few weeks, those disciples were dying for the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Do you make up a hoax, stash your body away and go out and get yourself killed for the claim that he's alive? It's so strange what happened there. So strange. How do you account for the empty tomb? Argument number three. Something must account for that dramatic change that came upon the disciples. You know they were not gullible. They were heartbroken and despairing and angry that Jesus was dead. They were terrified that the Jews and the the soldiers and the Gentiles had all conspired together to kill Jesus. And he was dead and all their hopes were done for. And they said on the On the road to Emmaus, we had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. It's all over. And they were ready to go back fishing. They were uh, all hidden in a room to get away from the people that were possibly after them. And even when the women came and said, we saw him, they didn't believe it. These were not gullible apostles. They were skeptical. They were despairing. But within seven weeks, they were on fire for the risen Christ. Within seven weeks, they were preaching, laying down their lives. James, the apostle, was his head, he had his head cut off within a matter of weeks in Jerusalem. And the rest of them were bold and strong and joyful and hopeful. Why? What happened? Argument number four. There was a leader of the Christian movement 20 years later named Paul. And he wrote a letter to a church in Corinth in the southern part of Greece to to uh, the believers who were there. And in it, he said this. Christ was raised on the third day. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, mark what he said. He is not here merely claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. My word against your word. That's not what he's doing. He's saying to the philosophical Greek skeptics in Corinth, he was seen by 500. Some are dead. I granted after 20 years, but a lot of them are alive. You can ask them. You can go and meet them. 500 eyewitnesses. He's writing to skeptics. There's some historical control here. And so the point is this. The Christian movement did not get started in an atmosphere of flushed, fanatical gullibilism. It was born and carried along paths where eyewitnesses could be queried about what he looked like. Did you touch him? Could he eat? 
Did he come and go? What was he like? Was it the same Jesus? Was it just a vision? And they could talk with 500 some people who had been through that encounter. Argument number five. The New Testament writers who tell us about the resurrection don't seem to be dupes or deceivers. Now, I realize there's some subjective judgment here, but let me here's what I'm saying. Suppose something happens in the Twin Cities today that's of ultimate importance for your life. You could think of all kinds of things. Somebody kills a relative of yours. Somebody breaks into your house or something. And and uh, some people saw it, but there were no camcorders. There were no tape recorders, just witnesses. That's all you've got to go on. Witnesses. You weren't there. You cannot prove it with mathematical certainty that so-and-so did it. But somebody saw so-and-so do it. Somebody saw it. Now, what do you do at this point? All you can do is test the credibility of the witnesses. That's all our court systems can do, ultimately. They sit witnesses down and they try to test the consistency of their testimony. They try to tell, are these people gullible? Are they trying to pull the wool over people's eyes? Are these people unstable? Do these people have a good character reference? And you gradually accumulate enough character evidence that you go with the witnesses. That's the situation we're facing with the resurrection. We weren't there. There weren't any... Uh, Cameras like that one over there that'll be able to tell you in a year exactly what I said and I won't be able to tell you otherwise. There weren't any tape recorders. All there were was 500 witnesses. And some of them wrote down in the Bible what they experienced and what they were taught by this risen Christ. What I commend to you is not that you take my word for it that these are sober, level-headed, trustworthy witnesses. Don't take my word for it. Just take the Bible, carry one here, take this book and go to the last part of it here where those writers wrote and ask yourself, are they confused? Are these the kind of people that are gullible? Are they dupes? Are they deceivers? Are they stable? Are they sober? Do they have a love for truth? Do their testimonies cohere? And just decide for yourself. That's what Jesus says. Judge for yourselves. Whether or not what I say and what they say are true. And then the final argument I want to mention is this. Hundreds of you in this room can bear witness today of the personal, life-changing reality and power of the living Christ in your life. When you believed upon Him, put your faith in Him, acknowledged Him as the Lord, He sent His Spirit into your life. And by that spirit, hundreds of you could stand up and testify right now that a new love for God came into your life. A new powerful love for people came into your life. A new joy, a new hope, a new peace, a new patience in the midst of trial, a new willingness to work and live for others, a new commitment to justice and truth. And you bear witness that that just wouldn't have happened had there not been something real and supernatural working on you. And so those are my six reasons that I want you to seriously consider this morning. Now, notice on that last reason where we've arrived. 
The last reason was really an argument from the meaning of the resurrection for individuals. You see how closely tied the truth question and the meaning question are? Most people in reality are not rigorous, careful, scholarly historians. And I don't believe the Christian movement has grown and spread because it demands that people be critical, rigorous historians who reconstruct bygone days. Rather, the average, normal, ordinary, reasonable way by which people come to be subjectively, firmly persuaded that Jesus is risen is because he makes himself real to them through faith. And so what I want to do now in the last part of the message is to talk about two great meanings of the resurrection for me and for hundreds here and for all of you here were you to trust in Jesus Christ. Let me go back to the essence of Christianity. I love to talk about the heart of the Christian faith as it is distinguished from every other religion in the world. And people are often astonished to hear what I think the essence of Christianity is. Here it is. I think the essence of Christianity is that God does not want you to display your strength by working for him, but rather God wants to display his strength by working for you. God does not want you to demonstrate your power by serving him. He wants to demonstrate his power by serving you. That, to me, is the essence of Christianity that sets it apart from all world religions. We have a God who wants to be our servant, that his power Wisdom and love might be displayed as he works for us like a laborer with a sweaty back. Because we need him so much. That's the essence of Christianity. You want to hear that come from the Bible? Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives life and breath and everything to all people. You hear that? God cannot be served by you because he has no needs. God has no deficiencies that we could make up by serving Him. We have the deficiencies. We have the needs. And God stands ready to display His all-sufficiency by becoming our servant and meeting our needs as He works for us. That's the beauty of Christianity. Here it is again from the prophet of old, Isaiah. From of old... No one has heard by the ear, nor has anyone seen with the eye a God besides thee who works for those who wait for him. Now, the two halves of that verse are very important. Nobody has ever heard of a God 
Nobody has ever seen a God like this. That simply means all the other religions of the world have different gods than this. The gods of the other religions say, work for me and I will bless you and I will let you into heaven if you work for me. Work now. Shape up so that you can have life eternal or get reincarnated. Work for me. And God comes and says, nobody has seen a God like me who works for those who wait for me, who depend upon me, who trust in me, who renounce their own self-reliance and open themselves up to my work and leave their own behind. Now, did Jesus Christ embody that religion? What was his answer when asked, Why did you, the Son of God, come into the world as the Son of Man? This was his answer. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you hear it? When God wanted to display himself in his Son, What words did he put in the mouth of his son? I have come not to get people to work for me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a help wanted sign. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a help available sign for helpless people like you and me who are so sick with our sin and so frail with our sicknesses, and so frightened of eternity. I am here to work for you this morning, says the Lord. That's the essence of the Christian religion. That's the message of Jesus Christ. And I just want to close by showing you that the resurrection, the resurrection is God's declaration and God's confirmation That he wants to be your servant through the risen Jesus Christ. Now, to make this plain, I think I need to try to get a reading as to whether we're on the same wavelength as to what our needs really are. I wish we had time for you to just tell me, what is your biggest need this morning? Because we get a lot of different answers. We get health answers. My biggest need is my body. I'm dying of cancer. And there's some here like that. My biggest need is my marriage. I don't think it'll last a week. My biggest need is my work. I just heard last week they're closing out my branch. I'm in my midlife. I never dreamed I'd have to change. My biggest problem is my children. I can't control them anymore. And I have no idea what they're doing on the weekend. And on and on the list would go. And I just want to say to you, God cares about those problems. And when the living Christ comes into a life to serve, He works on those problems. I've seen Him work on those problems. But you know what? Those aren't the biggest problems anybody in this room has this morning. Those are not my biggest problems and they're not your biggest problems. And I don't know if I can get you to agree with this, but I'm going to try. I think 
There are two problems that we would call our biggest problems. Let me try to make a case for that and then show how the resurrection relates to those. The biggest problem that you have this morning and that I have this morning is that you and I are sinners. That we sin. I don't care how you define it, but you do it. You know you do it. Your conscience tells you you do it. The Bible tells you you do it. Your wife and husband tells you you do it. Your kids tell you you do it. You read it in the mirror. We are sinners. We do wrong. We speak wrong. We have wrong feelings, wrong thoughts. And our consciences make us feel frightened about this. We worry about it unless we drown it. Or unless we deny it and say, no, there is no such thing as wrong or sin. Or unless we try to work it off and drudge it out and try to say, well, I've done more good than wrong. As though that would make any difference before a holy God. So the first problem we have is that we're sinners. And the second problem that we have is that we're going to die. We are going to die. Now let me take those one at a time. Number one, I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. And the Bible says this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. But Christ has been raised. And therefore, no one who believes in Christ needs to be still in the condemnation and threat of sin anymore. What the resurrection was, was God's declaration and confirmation and validation that the death of Jesus Christ for sinners was all that was needed. When you watch Jesus rise from the dead in scriptures, you know what you should hear? It was finished at Calvary. Every debt has been paid. The penalty has been borne. The curse has been applied to him that belonged to me. And now he rises to say, it is over. It's taken care of. Sin is punished. Those who now belong to me experienced their punishment when I died. I'll tell you, that's the most wonderful news that a sinner could ever hear. I need a word like that. Because even the sins that I commit in the future are covered by the death of Jesus Christ. As long as I hold to him. And just let his righteousness enfold me. Not my righteousness. Not my service. Not my work. But the work, the service, and the righteousness of my omnipotent king servant. Jesus. He finished it. And that's the greatest news that anybody could ever hear. And it's available by faith in him. I say it's available by faith. So many people say, okay, I hear it. It's been offered. Now I'll work for it. And I'll work so hard. And I'll try my best to get to heaven. And do you see what we're doing at that moment? We're doing a great role reversal with our king. He wants to be your servant. And therefore he says so plainly, by grace are you saved through faith. It is not your own doing, not of works. 
It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Let him who boasts, boast in the servant. The way to have forgiveness this morning is not to work for Jesus. Let him work for you. Relax. Lay yourself down in the arms of the one who came not to be served, but to serve. One last point. Everybody in this room is going to die. I got a phone call yesterday from my friend John Enzer in Boston. And he said, John, 48 people have been murdered in Boston so far this year. There's a spirit of violence and fear upon this city like I've never seen before. People are afraid to toot their horn because somebody might pull a pistol and just shoot them right through the windshield. That's the spirit in the place right now. There are three million people with AIDS in the world. There are 60 million AIDS carriers and 400,000 people die of AIDS every year. Are they unusual? They are not unusual. They are a living parable of everybody's life. Three million people will die of tuberculosis this year. 500,000 women will die in childbirth this year in the world. On planet Earth this year, 50 million people will die. And you will die. The average length of life in the world is 62.3 years. That means I have, if I'm average, 18 years. And that sounds real short to me. We were made to live. We weren't created to die. I want to live forever. I hate Death. Death is an enemy. I am not Plato. I do not belong to the Hemlock Society. I want to live forever in this body so that you will know me and touch me. And I will sing with this loud voice. I want to live. Don't you want to live? Or have you bought the platonic notion that the body is really nothing? That when you die, maybe your soul will fly away and never again know the pain of body. I want to live. So when the Bible says to me, if the Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, the Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to this mortal body by the Spirit who dwells in you. I listen. I listen because I want to live forever. And I want you to know me in the kingdom 
with a recognizable John Piper body, just like they recognized the risen Christ and knew it was he when he ate fish and broke bread as a risen Savior. And I love the words of Jesus. You remember the encounter with Martha? Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. And he who lives and believes in me shall never die. When Jesus rose from the dead, he bought everlasting life and overcame death for all who belong to him. So I'm done now. And I just want to lead us into a time of consideration of these things. And here's the way I want us to do it. Just in the quietness of the hour. And I know that there are people here, people who go to Bethlehem, people who don't go to Bethlehem, who need so seriously to consider what I've said.